John 19. We're still there. So turn to John, the 19th chapter. I'm going to kind of uh, uh, look at last week a little bit, kind of jump on that and, and expand that this week. And uh, so Jake is home. Haminas, the Haminas are listening. Uh, and they're, they're getting better. And so we're praying for them as well, and the Armstrongs and others. So uh, we just keep people before the Lord, right? Just keep people before the Lord. Uh, as you're looking at that, I'm also going to be jumping over to Psalms 22. So you might want to jump back and put your finger there because I want to look back and forth at these. So keep John 19 and Psalms 22. Obviously, it's the same things are being dealt with there. So we're going to, we're going to extrapolate some of that. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we're thankful for the privilege of being in the Word of God. For this great country, we're able to do that. We're, we're, we're so blessed. And over the years, there's been so many who've committed uh, their, their life's treasure so that we could be here today in freedom and, and to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and have the freedom of worship. So we're thankful for that. And uh, we're thankful for the Word of God and for Jesus Christ. We pray that as we open the Word today that you would speak in and through it to us, your children, your family. And this is our heart and prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to take just uh, a moment here for a moment of silence. I, I, I think it's appropriate for what's happened this week and the people who've lost their lives over there. And so let's just take a moment and, and, and just remember them and, and their families during this time. For those, our Father, who have given the ultimate price, we give you thanks for their service, for their love for their country, for their love for us, for their love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, John 19. I'm going to begin with verse 23, if you're there with me. And uh, we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. When the soldiers, nope, we don't have the thing, huh? All right. Got your Bibles. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven from one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her home into his home. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
So we're looking at the Gospel of John, and we're toward the end of it now, moving toward the end, and what John tells us about the last hours of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus solved an ancient mystery. And what is this mystery? What's going on here and what's being said? In John 19, in verse 24, Jesus tells us that being stripped of all his clothing fulfilled Scripture. They divided my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, if you go back to Psalms 22 and verse 18, you have a reference there to this same thing, which is where Jesus is taking this from, where we read, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The gospel writers and Jesus are telling us here, now all the gospels point to this, that if you want to understand the meaning of the cross, look at Psalms 22. Look at what it says there. And when we look at Psalms 22, we see one of the great mysteries in Hebrew Scripture. Why? Why? What's going on here? In Psalms 22, if you look and you've, you've got that in your Bible, turn to look at verses 6 through 8. In 6 through 8, it's describing here a public spectacle. I am scorned. Men are looking at me. I'm scorned by men. I'm despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me. They shake their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. It's a public spectacle. And the person is dying here. In verse 17, it says, he's so emaciated, he says, I can count all my bones. People stare at me. They gloat over me. My bones are on display, right? I think the NIV says that. This is a man dying, and here he's dying of thirst. Not just a little thirsty. We spoke about this several weeks ago. His tongue is swelling up, and it's choking him as he's on the cross. That's in verse 15. And the most amazing thing of all comes in verse 16. The psalmist says, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands. They've pierced my feet. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. Here's the mystery. Here's the thing here. This is a psalm of David. Look at the top of the page. If you look at the top of this psalm, it says, and I'm sure you all say it, a psalm of David. A psalm of David. There are many places where David was in trouble, surrounded by enemies, places where he was hounded, assaulted, persecuted. Here's the difference from the other Psalms of David. This is a public execution. A public execution that's being described here. You cast lots for somebody and their garments when they're dying or they're dead. That's, you're getting their stuff, right? It's the spoils for the executioner. That's what they get some of that. Piercing hands and feet, people staring and gloating and laughing as you're dying and being run through with an iron. This is a Psalm of David. This generation that this is being written to right here didn't know a thing about Jesus. Didn't know a thing about the cross. We look back and we say, oh, of course, that's the Lord. They didn't know this. They're looking at this as a psalm of David. 
And the, you know, where did this happen in the life of David? And that's what they're looking at. Where did it happen in the life of David? And the answer is, it didn't. It didn't. And of course, it didn't. David was a king. David was never publicly executed. Never. That's not the only part of the mystery as we look at this passage of Scripture. All the other places where David is in difficulty, he's defiant. He's, he's, he's just defiant about things. He's always calling God to rain down wrath. You know, always calling on God. And when you read Psalms 22, the speaker here is bowing in submission, accepting the punishment. This isn't defiance. This isn't like David at all. Isn't like David. And the most amazing part of the mystery is the last part of Psalms 22. If you drop down to verse 27, though he's being executed, God is going to deliver him. And when the people saw it, look what it says there. All the nations at the end of the earth would turn to the Lord. It's not until the cross that we see the solution, right? That we see this happening. In fact, without the cross, there is no solution to Psalms 22. And then the last thing it says in verse 31, he has done it. Well, what? What? And they're saying, well, what did David do? He has done it. He has done it. We talked about that last week. Peter, in his first uh, sermon in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, says, being a prophet, he's talking about David here, being a prophet, David foresaw and he spoke of Christ. In other words, in the midst of his suffering, by the power of the Holy Spirit, David discerned that there was going to be a greater David, a greater sufferer, a greater kingdom that was coming. And if it's true, everybody, including Jesus, Say, look at Psalms 22 if you want to understand the cross. Psalms 22, okay, what do we learn? What do we learn? First, we learn this, that Jesus' sufferings were infinite. Jesus' sufferings were infinite. Here's a man who's been flogged, dying of thirst, has iron spikes that are running through his hands and his feet, crown of thorns, yet, and, and again, we dealt with this last week just a little bit, he never cries out, my hands, my hands, or my feet, they hurt, or my head, it hurts. Do you know why? He's being abandoned. He cries out, my God, my God. He's being abandoned. He's being uh, strips here. That's what nakedness means when we talk about crucifixion. He's being abandoned by God. He's receiving the penalties of the sins of the world. And here's why. What is sin according to the Bible? I mean, there's a lot of different definitions and, and, and there's a lot that plays into this. But one of the things here, there are a lot of ways of characterizing it, but one of the ways to characterize it is it's trying to get away from God. Trying to get people trying to get away from God so we can live the way we want to live, do what we want to do. If you want a perfect example of the human heart, look at the parable of the prodigal son. 
I mean, that's one we know really well, right? The, the, the younger son comes to the father and says, give me part of my inheritance. Give me my money. You know, I want to get as far away from you as possible so I can live the way I want to live. In a nutshell, that's the prodigal son. That's what the Bible says the human heart feels toward God. Let's get away from God. We don't look, push God away. Look what's happening in our society. We don't, we don't want any of that. You know? God is okay generally. You know, he's the source of all things, all that. And, but basically, I want to get away from him so I can live the way I want to live my life, basically. And the Bible also says since we're built for God and we're built by God, we need the presence of God the way the earth needs the sun. It needs the sun. But our hearts, our minds, our souls, our beings need the presence of God because we're created by God. Therefore, it would be the most horrible and yet the most absolutely just and fair punishment God could possibly give us is to simply let us have our way. Go, you want to go? Bye. Right? Right? The Father says, you want to go away from my presence? Romans 1 talks about that. You want to go away from my presence? Then go away from my presence. That would be the worst thing possible. But that's what we see on the cross. That's what we see on the cross. We see Jesus Christ experiencing what we want. You get it? It's what we want. We see Jesus experiencing what we deserve, the abandonment of God. He's being abandoned by God. So when Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's losing the face of the Father. He's being plunged into absolute eternal darkness of his soul. He's being destroyed. That's what he's suffering on the cross. Infinite suffering. Far greater than the spikes and the thorns. You say, well, infinite, infinite suffering. Infinite suffering. Come on, isn't, isn't Jesus Christ God? Isn't he God? Doesn't he kind of know everything, know all the stuff? You know, it's, you know, his suffering can't be that great. I once saw a dog that got a broken leg. And uh, it was pitiful. The dog was howling and jumping around with one leg, you know, uh, hanging off and whatnot. And the dog suffered. And as a pastor, I've, I've seen too many times a spouse watch another spouse die and watch the pain and the hurt and the heartache. I've seen a spouse lose the love of their lives watching her die. And I, and I have one individual especially that I think of that just, just disintegrated in, in front of me. Wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say, because of being human and being a human being, because of being a much high order of, 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 of consciousness and reflectiveness, wouldn't you call the agony of watching a life mate, uh, the, the love of your life dying infinitely beyond what a dog experienced. A higher order of being gives a higher order of suffering, wouldn't you say? So Jesus, think about it. So Jesus, when he's on the cross, losing the love and the face of the Father, 
he had had for eternity. This relationship, losing a love infinitely greater than anything we could ever understand or know. He suffered infinitely more than you and I will ever suffer. Divine suffering. The suffering servant. That's what the cross is all about. Then the second thing we see on the cross is infinite faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. In John and in Psalms 22, when he says, my God, my God, do you know what language that is? What language that is? My God, my God. That's covenant language. That's covenant language that he's speaking about here. When you get in a covenant and a relationship with God, God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. How many times is that in the Old Testament? I mean, like probably a hundred times. I will be your God, you will be. He keeps saying that. We're in covenant. We're in a covenant relationship. To call him my God, even when it's, he's being abandoned, which is uh, covenant language, it's loving language, it's loyal language. And do you know what you have here? When I was in high school, and I can remember this uh, years ago, uh, I took American literature, and I wanted to do that. So, you know, you read all the, the great American novels. And in American literature, we had to read Moby Dick. I don't know if you've read a great book. Captain Ahab, Moby Dick, was going down. You know, he's, 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 he's stabbing Moby Dick. He's been chasing him all of his life, the white whale, the great whale. And he's being drowned by him at the same time he's stabbing him. And he didn't care. What does he say? Remember what he says? It's a great line. It's a great line. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. I'm in hell, and I still hate you. Amazing. It's amazing. I hope when I'm being drowned by a whale that I'm as eloquent. <laughs> but it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, right? He was going into the ocean. He wasn't going into hell. But here's one person who literally could say, I'm in the heart of hell. I'm in hell's heart. I'm experiencing something worse than you will ever experience in hell because I'm infinitely greater than you are. Think about this now. From hell's heart... I still love my Father. From hell's heart, I still love my people. Infinite, perfect faithfulness to us and to the Father. He's not just dying the death that we should have died. He's living the life we should have lived. He's living the life we should have lived, being perfectly obedient to the Father. Third thing here, and this brings kind of a conclusion to it, says we have infinite suffering, we have the infinite faithfulness of God, which brings infinite redemption. Infinite redemption. It's not just that Jesus is dying the death that we should have died, our sins being put on him, but he's living the life we should have lived. So when we receive him into our hearts, into our lives, it's not just that our sins go to him, but his righteousness comes to us, right? 
We know that passage of Scripture. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. The Bible says that point blank. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's what we're shouting about. That's what we're shouting about, you know? It's only in Jesus Christ that Psalms 22 is not a lie. Otherwise, Psalms 22 is a lie. Because Psalms 22 says, when people from all around the world, every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, from the farthest ends of the earth, when they see this sufferer, it's going to turn them to the God of Israel. Right? See, Jesus is the solution to the mystery of the nation of Israel. That's the meaning of the cross. Infinite suffering, infinite faithfulness, infinite redemption. And yes, this points us to Psalms 22, where Jesus says, because I've done that, I'm going to give you two gifts. Two gifts for your life. And the first is he covers our shame. He covers our shame. See, when the Romans crucified a criminal, they stripped him naked and they died naked. You know, we see all the pictures of Christ with the cloth there. That's a modest thing, but he was naked. He was hanging naked on the cross. And that was part of the torture. That was part of the torture. Part of the punishment. Why? Because not only in ancient cultures, but also in human experience, nakedness refers to two things. You were defenseless, you were vulnerable, and shame. Just shame. To be naked means you're defenseless. Would you have liked to come here today naked? Now you're thinking about it, aren't you? I don't think so. And the rest of us don't like that. I don't think so. It's hard to walk without shoes on. It's hard to move about or go anywhere without clothes on. Worst of all, you can't keep people's eyes out. You can't keep people's eyes out. You've lost control. You know? They see what you look like. They see everything. Nothing worse than that. You know? In the Bible and in human experience, nakedness refers to being shamed. There's one place in the Bible, just one place, where nakedness does not refer to shame. You know where it is? It's before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2. The only place in the whole Bible. Before the fall in the Garden of Eden, before we turned away from God, what does it say about Adam and Eve? Genesis 2, 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Naked and unashamed. Do you know why? Because when we are in a perfect relationship with God, there's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide. No need to control what people see when they look at me. I've got to control those things that people understand about me. No need to put a spin on anything in my life. They didn't mind if people looked all the way down into them. They weren't afraid of being rejected. They knew that even though they were totally known, they were totally loved. Totally loved by God. 
It's one of the most important things that the Bible tells us. Really. One of the most important things. The minute we turn from God, the minute we decide that we're going to be our own bosses, go our own way like the prodigal, call our own shots, live life the way we want, immediately we start to cover up. And we put on fig leaves. Why? Because there's something to hide. There's something to hide. Dave Atkinson and Kierkegaard, the, 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 the uh, philosopher, said some amazing things about this thing of shame. Atkinson says this. He says, there is shame. That sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. There is shame. What is shame? He says, shame is if there's anything you want to hide. Any thoughts you have? Any lustful thoughts you might have? Selfish thoughts? Begrudging thoughts? Shame is that deep unease, he says, that we have with ourselves. If we're known, if we're known to the bottom of our lives, we'll be rejected. Kierkegaard has a great spot where he says this, and I quote, in every man there is something which to a certain degree prevents him from becoming perfectly transparent to himself. Prevents him from being transparent to himself. But he who cannot reveal himself cannot love, and he who cannot love is the most unhappy person of all. The Bible says, because we know there's something wrong in us, things we don't want other people to see, we have to hide from the world and we have to hide from other people. Otherwise, we'll be rejected. We'll be canceled. In the original story about nakedness and shame, the Bible tells us about the fig leaves. You know, let's, let's, let, let me, let, let's put it like this. Why is it that some of us just work so hard. It's work, 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 work so hard. Why are some of you such perfectionists? You make everyone else around you miserable and including yourself. Why are some of you so obsessed with how you look? So obsessed with your weight? Why are some of you so obsessed with replaying old tapes of things that happened 30 years ago that you keep dragging out over and over and over again, nursing grudges from 40 years ago, saying, if it weren't for her, I'd be all right today. If it weren't for my father, if it weren't because of this. You know what these things are? You know what these things are? The grudges, the beauty, the work, the success, the perfectionism, they're fig leaves. They're fig leaves. You're covering. You're covering. If people really saw you to the bottom of your life, well, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't love me. I'll be rejected. So you have to control what people see. Jim, uh, oh, I wished I had the slide for Jim. I had a picture of Jim here, Jim, Jim Shepler. He always would say to me, and we, we would talk about this, but one of the things he said over and over again, Jim would say, 
You're entitled to your own dysfunction. You're but it wasn't, he wasn't done. You're entitled to your own dysfunction, but you're not entitled to your own truth. I'll never forget that. You're entitled to your own dysfunction, but you're not entitled to your own truth. Wouldn't it be great to have an identity, a certainty about your value as an individual, a deep ease at the center of your being about who you are, that you could be more transparent with people? I mean, this is who I am. You're not so driven, wouldn't be as worried about how you look, wouldn't be as angry about the way people treated you 40 years ago. Wouldn't that be great? The Bible says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Why? Why? On the cross, Jesus Christ is stripped naked. Isaiah 50 in verse 6 says this. He didn't flinch from the shame that came his way. He came to take the shame away from us. He says this. I gave my, it's Isaiah 50 in verse 6 if you're writing this down. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and shame and spit because the Lord God helps me. I have been, not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. He came to be stripped. He came to be humiliated. He came to lose all of his glory. He came to lose all of his honor. He was stripped so that you and I could be clothed. Salvation is about being clothed. Salvation is about being clothed. Isaiah 61 says, My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, with a robe of righteousness. I'm being clothed, and God's doing this for me. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord says to his people, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. I'm your God. You're my people. I dressed you in fine linen. I covered you with costly garments. And you say, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's just simple. Jesus was stripped naked so that you could be clothed. Objectively, when you take Jesus and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins are taken away. God now accepts you, not because of what you've done. If he looks all the way down into you, into your life, the way you are, you're rejected. You don't even live up to your own standards. You know that? I don't either. I got standards, and I'm always saying, oh, I didn't do that right. I know better than that. I don't even live up to my own standards. How am I going to live up to God's standards my life? But in Jesus Christ, this is the joy of, of being a Christian. You're clothed with Christ's righteousness. You're accepted. Your sins are taken away. I see him dying on the cross for me, and I see him submitting on the cross for me, and I see him saying, from hell's heart, Tom, I love you. From hell's heart, Richard, 
I love you. From hell's heart, Sue, I love you. That's what he's doing on the cross. Do you know what that means? You know what that means? He has looked all the way down in the deepest recesses of my life, my soul. And he's seen everything. And he still loves me. He still loves me. To the degree that that truth actually grabs your heart, to that degree, you will begin to experience a new kind of identity. Your new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are new in Christ. And you're clothed in his righteousness. And you need, at that point, you, you, you lose the need to control what everybody sees. You won't be as upset when you put on five pounds or upset that you haven't been as successful this year as you wanted to be. You won't be devastated by criticism of other people. You'll be free. You'll be free. And you know what? Here's the thing. It's not scratched for. It's not clawed for. It's received as a gift. It's a gift. You know what it is? It's what the scripture says. It's, it's resting in Christ. It's, it's abiding in him. It's resting in him. In what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for you. And he covered your shame. Last thing. And we talked about, and I wanted to come back to this because I think some people were a little bit last week about this one thought I had on the family. And we touched on this. He puts us in family. He puts us in family. Jesus looks down at the cross here and he says, Mother, do you see this disciple here? This is your son. And disciple, you see this woman here? That's now your mother. You, you, you see what's going on here? This is powerful. This is powerful. In Western culture, and, and we're all a part of this, the individual is supreme. Individual rights. Don't do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. They're more important than family's expectations, really. I want to do what I want to do. Individual rights. That's what, what theologians call enlightened individualism. Enlightened individualism, Western culture. So here Jesus actually had the world bearing down on him on the cross, right? Literally. Everything bearing down. He was in infinite agony. And he's thinking about his mom. He's thinking about his mom. It was the eldest son's job back then to take care of his mother. He's dying. God, his father, is forsaking him. And yet at the very end, he's still thinking about family responsibilities. Think about this. That's a rebuke of Western individualism. That's saying that family is incredibly important. Family is incredibly important. Non-Western cultures, the opposite occurs. The family is all important, right? Yeah, family is all important. And it's just as much of an idol, it's just the opposite idol. It's the opposite idol. Living up to your family's expectations. 
How many people have been pressed by pleasing the family, what the family wants? And I want you to see here, Jesus not only rebukes Western culture, but non-Western culture as well, because Jesus had brothers. Jesus had brothers. But Jesus turns to John, his disciple. His brothers didn't believe in him. Who believes in him? And says, this is your mother. And this is your son. Jesus is saying, now catch this now, will you? People who believe in me, those who are in Christ have a stronger bond than they do with members of their own blood family. We are blood brothers and sisters. His blood. His blood. We are blood brothers and sisters. This is a key bond. We're a new creation in Christ. He demotes the family and he demotes the individual at the same time from the cross. No culture like this because all cultures make an idol of something. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You worship me. See, see if you get that, then you can go back and look at other passages of scriptures that Jesus talks about this and you start to understand what he's saying. You know, we always, you know, I've heard in the nauseam when people come to the passage of scripture where Jesus is talking about, you know, he's calling the disciples and the disciples, he says, well, let, he says, I gotta go bury my father. He says, let the dead bury the dead. What's he saying that for? Follow me. What's he saying that for? You start to understand some different passages of scripture that are being done. He says, you are forever in a new family. Forever. Get it? Forever. You, me, forever, together, in a new family. And I'll close with this. Do you know how powerful this is? This is saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ says that blood, race, Good family, bad family, social standing, all that kinds of stuff is insignificant. Before the throne of God, we're all sinners. None of that stuff merits a thing when you stand before God. None of those things matters in the grand scheme of things compared to the love and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means the end of bigotry. It should mean the end of those things that divide us. All the snobbery. It should be gone. It's pretty radical. The Bible is saying if you're a Christian here today, then every other Christian here, whether you've met them or not, is your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, a family relationship. There is an unconditionality about it. That, that's an important word. There's an unconditionality about it. There's an intensity about it. There's an influence that happens in the body of Christ. So it's unconditional. What, what, what do I mean by that? You, you've noticed this. You've noticed this in your own uh, physical families, right? Some of you have brothers and sisters who are not the kind of person you'd want to be friends with. You know? You don't even like them. You've struggled with them for years. You have no interest in them. You haven't talked to them in years. Yet because you have the same parent, that doesn't matter. There's an unconditionality about relationships. 
And there's also an intensity that happens. You know this. You can't hide from family. You know, Mary's brother's coming home this week. You can't hide from family. And I, and I, and I don't mean that badly. <laughs> they, they, they were with you. They changed your diaper. They changed your diaper. They wiped your nose. They know who you are. But most of all, they, they influence you more than you care to admit. Your family has influenced you more than you care to admit. I am who I am. And I, 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 I am who I am because of what I made myself. I pulled myself up by own bootstraps. And I'm, I am who I am. The older you get, the more you realize, I'm just like my dad. <laughs> I'm actually like my brother. Uh, you know, you're, you're just like your family, just like my mom. You're influenced by the people you spend the most time with. You know? Wherever you live, your relationship with other Christians has a relational intensity. Mike influences me. Lloyd influences me. We influence, there's an intensity there that comes from siblings. We're together in the same family. And in spite of the fact that they come from different cultures in the church, different races, different classes, there's an intensity about it, a reality about it. When I went to seminary, I'm done with this. When I went to seminary, uh, I had terrific teachers. I, I really enjoyed seminary. I learned the, the, the learning that went on there, the, 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 the things I, I, I never knew that, that the teachers were sharing with us. I learned a lot. But you know what? You know what? What really changed me in seminary, what made me the minister that I am today, was my friends. My friends. And when we got done with the class in hermeneutics, we'd all go to the cafeteria and we'd sit around the table and we'd talk everything about what the professor said. And we played off of one another and we discussed and we figured out what was my dysfunction and what was truth. You know? And we talked together and we grew together. And what was actually really not going to have an impact on our lives but what was going to change us in the way we lived and moved and had our being, what was changed, and that happened through community, talking with one another, iron sharpening iron. In the body of Christ, that happens. We share with one another. As a part of God's family, we start to look like the Father, right? We start to look like Him. Day by day, month by month, we start to look by Him. We start to look like the sun. We start to look like God's people. God's people. And I'll, cl I'll close with this phrase. You can think about it. You will get nothing of Christ-likeness in your life unless you're willing to be put in the family that Christ puts you in. And he's put you in this family. He's put you in this family a part of the body of Christ. And that's the importance of that, that Jesus is talking from the cross. It's just not words to mean something. I mean, it's, it's ground-shaking, really. It's ground-shaking. Let's pray together. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Washed in the blood, saved, redeemed, Heaven awaits. 
in the great family of God at the end of time it comes together rejoicing and sharing with one another with the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. We're so grateful, our Father, for the scriptures that speak to these things for us and the importance of them. We pray, Lord, that we take the things that have been said today and the word of God that speaks to us, that we talk with one another about these things and, and, uh, and grow together in this and rejoice that he has covered our shame that he's placed us in a forever family and that we belong to him. And we're so thankful, Lord, for that. We're thankful for what you've done. We're thankful for loving us to the end through blood and through pain and intimate suffering. We're thankful. Strengthen our hearts for this week, the things we have before us, the people we have the privilege of speaking to and into their lives, that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ properly. And this is our heart, and this is our, our thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.